The Medical School HQ Podcast, session number 44. Welcome back to the Medical School HQ Podcast, the place to learn how to excel as a pre-med student, learn what it takes to survive medical school, and turn your dreams of becoming a physician into reality. We're bringing you the most unbiased, honest, and accurate information available online. My name is Ryan Gray, and I'll be your host today. So today, I have a long conversation and probably a boring conversation for a lot of you, but it's such an important topic to understand what it's like on the other side of medical school as you're paying back several hundred thousand dollars worth of student loans. So today I brought back Tony Sozo, who was with us also in episode 21. And Tony and I are going to talk about all the different options for loan repayments and what that might mean to your bottom line, what that leaves in your bank account at the end of the day. And we'll go over the pros and cons of everything and uh, a lot of different options and things to think about. The, the ultimate advice that Tony gives is no matter what you do, allow yourself to have as many options possible at the end of the day. Meaning, if you take out private loans, you're limiting your options. If you have credit card debt, you're limiting your options. Those are just a couple of the examples that we talk about. Like I said, for some of you, it might be a little bit of a dry topic. So if you have a long drive, maybe it's not one you want to listen to right now. It might be one to listen to while you're home and are able to take some notes because there's, there's a lot of stuff that we talk about. One of the big things I want to talk about as I am recording this and, and the day that this is released, this is going to go out September 25th, 2013. As of Monday, September 23rd, the Academy has opened. We have finally opened the Academy for a limited time. We're going to close it on September 26th at 3 p.m. Eastern. And... We're doing that because we just want to let in a small group of people, and we already have about 20 or so, and, and we're reaching where we wanted um, the, the number of people for our small beta group. But we want to bring this group in, and we want to work with them closely and, and really find out what exactly you guys want and, and, and exactly what you guys need inside of the academy. And we're going to set up our first office hours here for next week and start getting content out there to, to help the students on their path to becoming physicians. If you haven't seen the Academy, if you haven't checked it out yet, please go to medicalschoolhq.net slash academy. If you go there before September 26th at 3 p.m. Eastern, you'll still have time to sign up. If you don't, then you might see a uh, just an email sign-up sheet to get notified when we reopen. This is an awesome opportunity. It costs less than two coffees a month. I think uh, uh, you guys can afford that for, for this uh, beta launch. It, it will go up a little bit after that. So one other thing I do want to mention besides the Awesome Academy are the awesome listeners that are still leaving five-star ratings and five-star reviews. This week we had a couple new ratings and we had one review by Doc Sink. She says, I'm finished with med school. This even helps me even though I've gone through the process. Great podcast. And Doc Sink is actually one of our former guests on the podcast, uh, anesthesiologist, who talked about how she corrected course after struggling through medical school. And she's actually one of the experts that we brought into the academy to talk about her path and to help others on theirs. So 
Thank you to DocSync for that awesome review. Let's jump into the uh, conversation with Tony. We talk about some of the, the basics, uh, m- the basic math with the average debt that students have and what residents make. And so uh, we'll jump into that now. It's probably going to be, um, we, we get the average debt information and other information from the, the Association of American Metal Colleges, the AMC, around October. So I'm estimating about 170000 will be the average debt for all medical schools. Private schools will probably be approaching about 190000 185000 to $190,000, um, uh, and that's a growing number, of course. Um, the average residency salary, and that's an important thing to know, is about 50000 depending on what parts of the country. Uh, in your major urban centers, you're probably averaging about 55000 um, So, uh, unfortunately, we're seeing um, a growing number of students with over 200000 over 250000 coming out of medical schools that number is growing and now there's even a category of over 300000 that we use um, it, it it's kind of it's kind of startling i mean especially if you're you're an applicant and you deal with a lot of applicants who want this profession but they get scared away when they see those numbers the good news is what we're doing tonight Ryan we're going to show and demonstrate and discuss that if this is your dream, this is what you want to do, um, the, the options that are available now that weren't available even when you were going to school, uh, medical school, will, will, will at least make people think that there's a possibility and they can do something here. So Let me, let me interject and, and ask sure. the question that many people are asking, and, and it's all over the news right now, even with with undergrad is why is medical school cost increasing so much? Where, where is that money going towards if maybe you don't know the answer, but what, why is it so expensive to go to medical school? Well, the, the answer that I always give because I have some knowledge is that it, it is costly to run a medical school because of what you need to impart and have for the students that are going there. You need to have the proper equipment, uh, the Harveys, the, the, uh, on the simulated patients. <laughs> Remember those? Yeah. Um, and, um, and, and, and all of the new kinds of uh, equipment that come out that students have to learn about. Plus, you really have to pay for good instruction and good professors and people who are accomplished and have demonstrated that. Um, and also, you know, med schools are really no different then some of the undergraduate schools, there's a whole movement of wellness. Um, you want to make sure your, your students that, that come into your family are well taken care of. So having a gym and, and updating the gym and um, you know, having special kinds of programs and yoga and Pilates and the things that just balance your life out, um, it costs a little bit as well. But the good news is that the money is going back to the students, supposedly two-thirds to maybe 70% of the money that comes in goes for the educational instruction and that's not always explained well but it it's costly because you have to keep up it's not going towards your lamborghini what What is that (laughs) i've seen you drive that lamborghini around it's a 12 year old subaru thank you very much (laughs) so so, and that's good to know i don't know if i've ever seen that number of of actually the percentage of the tuition that that I'm paying is is directly affecting me. So that's good to know. Yeah. And see if you can answer this question. A lot of students that I talk to pick medical schools based on tuition. And I I tell them that's a bad thing to do. I agree. There there might be a difference of $10,000, $20,000, but if if that's what you're picking a medical school on and not picking it based on uh, location, maybe. Maybe you, you can't stand winter. You're going to get seasonal affective disorder and, and be depressed during the winter. And you're only applying to schools that are uh, in the middle of uh, 
Canada. <laughs> yeah, right. Because they're cheaper. Yeah. You're you're picking for the wrong reasons. Can can you talk a little bit about yep. medical schools overall, and and does it really matter if I'm saving ten thousand dollars of tuition right now? Yeah, I, I definitely have an opinion about that uh, because I do this. I read a lot about what's happening on the undergraduate level, and, and it's funny. There there are students that will call me during the month of June just before we start working with the first year or the incoming class, I should say. And they kind of say, well, you know, uh, you know, uh, can, can I get some scholarship money from you and how much? And we give out grants that are just for one year at a time based on a whole host of information. And I think it's actually the wrong thing to do to tell a student or an applicant, you m- might get X. I don't know that because I haven't seen your data. And it's only for one year. We may never get it again because your your economics could change. And you're giving up a choice of a col- uh, a medical school based on a promise. It just doesn't make any sense. No, I think we're at a time now, and maybe this has always been, but we want the instant impressions about everything. We go to Google, we we search something, we get an instant answer. And and I think students are just not. I use the term go deeper. They will look at an interest rate and say, oh, that must be bad. This one's lower. This must be better. But if you look at the details of things, um, you find out it's different. People aren't going deep. I use an expression, Brian. It's kind of funny. The large print giveth. So when you see an ad or you see anything or if you visit a school just for one day, the large print giveth. But it's the small print on the bottom that taketh away. And I think – if we can get them to go deeper, the most important thing they should be thinking about, uh, where do those students match? Can I see the match list? Um, oh, and they have some, those are pretty good appointments and pretty good assignments. And I see you got into dermatology. That's very hard to do. How safe do you feel? How comfortable do you feel there? What is the philosophy and the culture at that school? And so on and so forth. So $10,000 difference over the course of your lifetime over 50 years isn't going to make that much of a difference. Yeah, and maybe I'll, I'll put in the show notes, maybe we can work those numbers and show show the students that if you're taking an extra $10,000 over those four years that you're only paying back X number of dollars a month. It's really not that much of a difference. Well, it comes down to, you know, I don't know, 30 cents a day or something crazy <laughs> like that. Yeah. You're absolutely we'll, right. We'll work those numbers and show that in the in the sure. show notes. So, And, and okay. people can get the, the show notes at medicalschoolhq.net slash 44. Episode 44, Tony, can you believe it? I, that is amazing. How long have you been doing this now? 44 weeks. <laughs> <laughs> that is phenomenal. every week 44 weeks so. i am very impressed i'm happy to be a part of it too and we're we're glad that you're here for the second time so students uh it, i it might be a dry topic for a lot of students but it's in it's one of the most important topics so well we'll, we'll try to keep it in uh, right to the point where they can they can grasp it and maybe do something and i'll give them some homework so to speak as well i like it uh, just what they need more homework. All right. So we want to talk about loan repayment. So you you just mentioned the average indebtedness that a, the student is coming out with is about $170,000 right now. Mm-hmm. And to, to myself and to many students listening, $170,000 seems like an insurmountable mountain. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about some of the ways that we can dwindle that down with these loan repayment programs. Right. And the loan repayment programs are going to allow the very vast and varied type of human being that comes out of med school, typically around age 27 or so, um, the, the chance to do other things with your life, not only with your career, because there are so many options. Ryan, if I can say one thing to your listeners, it's always best to have as many options as possible. Options make it work. So let's go into some of that. What we now have essentially are six repayment plans. Your listeners are familiar with the first three. They're the kinds of repayment plans I designate, I call time-driven. What does that mean? Tell me how much debt you have. 
tell me how long you're going to repay it back, and we'll figure out the monthly payment. So obviously, if you take $170,000 and you say, I want to pay it over 10, month, 10 years, 120 months, you're going, to have, you're going to take all that money and squeeze it into 10 years. You're going to have a relatively high monthly payment. If you extend it to 25 or 30 years, you have lowered the monthly payment because you've stretched it out. There are pluses and minuses to both of those. Then there's a graduated plan. We'll get into the pluses and minuses in a bit. There's a graduated plan where you you start off paying so much per month for a couple of years, then it goes up a little the next two years and then the next three People will understand that the same concept of a balloon mortgage. You start low and then it goes up or adjusted adjustable rate mortgage. The pluses and minuses is another thing that I would like your listeners and applicants and students to, to, to think about. It's, it sounds good. Everything has a plus, but you've got to look at the, what might be the downside for you. For example, in that first example, I said you can take 170000 and toss it into 10 years. Well, I'm looking at my other screen here, and that would be a $2,000 a month payment. Now, when you're starting out and when you're in your residency years, you essentially wouldn't eat. You'd be living, <laughs> living for your loans. What's, it, you, you, you did mention the average resident uh, mm-hmm. stipend. It's, it's a stipend as a resident. It's, it's not really a salary. Um, well, the, the, the money that you get, what does that break down to take good. home? All right. I, 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 I want to do this. Let's do it now because we're then going to put all of this together as we look at these repayment plans. And I'll get back to discussing the uh, repayment plans in a second. But if you take a $50,000 salary, you, you essentially have to take out your withholdings. People think, oh, I have $50,000. I'm going to make, you know, I'm bringing home so much. No. The, you know, the government will take out withholdings. Um, hopefully, you balance it out where they take out just what they need uh, and you don't owe them anything at the end of the year or they, they don't take out too much and you get a refund. You may think, oh, that's terrific. Look at this nope. great refund. <laughs> no, you have given them your money more than you should have. Interest-free. Interest-free, and they give it back to you at the end of the year. Wouldn't you rather have had that extra money per month? Now, a good tax accountant will sit down with you and say, where are you going to work? What's your, what state? What city? Uh, how many, and tell you how many dependents to claim when you start work so it balances out. However, um, there's a, um, a website that I want your listeners to go to to try to see how this works. If you type in Google, what tax bracket am I in? Dash, it's complicated. It'll take you to the Motley Fool article. Very good article that breaks it down. It's not as simple as I'm in the 20% bracket. And you will see that they take 10% of the first $8,900 and then 15% between X and X. So for $50,000, it's coming out to be that you are in the 17% bracket. So you would take $50,000 and you would uh, minus 17%. And you're left with 41500 So that essentially is what you're taking home for the years. You would divide that by 12. And what you're living on is, say, let's round it down a little, be a little more conservative, $3,400 a month. Students don't, applicants and students and graduates have to say, what exactly do I have to work with? Now I have to decide how I'm going to live. Now you would take out your rent. <laughs> now, it varies from place to place. In, uh, in major urban centers, it could be $1,500 a month. And in many other parts, it could be $900. So I'll use $1,200. So if you take $3,400 and you minus out $1,200 off the bat, you're left with $2,200 every month. Now, what do you have to do with that $2,200? Got to eat. You got to pay your cable bill, your internet bill. You have a cell phone bill. You may need to pay for the upkeep on a car, uh, insurance on a car, and, of course, good old gasoline. And you start deducting those normal expenses, average them out per month, and you'll be left with X amount of dollars. Mm -hmm. Or maybe another way to do it is once you take out your rent, when we look at a typical loan repayment based on $50,000, and this is why I was making a little bit of a joke – for the 10-year plan at 170000 it's about 2000 a month. So if you go back and do the math, 
it doesn't work. Now, you could say, well, I'll take the graduated plan. I'll pay it off over 25 years. Well, yeah, it'll drop it down to $1,100, $1,200. But as I said, I should also be telling you about the pros and cons. The pro about a 10-year plan is that it's the cheapest plan. You're leaving your money out there only for 10 years with compounded interest. The 25-year plan is adding a ton more interest, even though it lowered the monthly payment. So that's something you have to think about. The exciting thing, using this example, Ryan, and continuing to discuss the repayment plans and moving into the newer ones, are the repayment plans based on income. The income driven plans and I'll explain them and then I'll go back to the example and show you how different it is when you use the income plans. And these these income based repayment plans I, I see them all over the internet it's abbreviated IBR correct? ICR IBR and there's a new one pay as you earn or PAYE or PAYE. Okay. Yes. For for others that are that are googling around this. Yep, it that's can fine. Be confusing. Yep, if you, you know, type in income, income-driven plans or – yeah. So I'll explain all of those. Um, but essentially, let's talk about in general what are they mean. They basically are looking at your income, your discretionary income, assuming certain – only small percentages of that and deriving uh, your monthly payment. You essentially have to have what they call a partial financial hardship, meaning the amount of loans that you have far exceeds – you know. 10, 15, or 20% of your income. It, it just would be too much. And because you have that partial hardship, they'll, they'll offer you a modest payment. So let me give you some examples. The older plan, which is about 20 years old, is called ICR. Go back to all those alphabet soup uh, names. ICR is called income contingent. For simplicity, of course, I'm going to give them a site they can read up a little bit more about this. For simplicity, the older plan said, we'll look at 20% of your income and discretionary income. Okay. Then in 2007, a new plan came out called IBR, income-based. And it essentially said it's about 15%. You see where I'm going with this. And the new pay-as-you-earn, which came out just last December of 12, is 10%. Now, if I stop right here, if I'm talking to students or applicants, I say, what these plans do, it gives you breathing room. You graduate from school. You have a considerable amount of debt. These plans offer you modest loan repayments. Mm-hmm. And initially, that's a good thing. So now I can live. I can breathe. I can, I can you know, maybe buy a new car and pay off a car payment. I can maybe. buy a 60-inch TV. Yeah, I can actually <laughs> catch up on the news and watch those football games. On <laughs> You'll have no time to watch news. or <laughs> No, you won't. We all know that. But the point is you can begin to live. Now, there are pluses and minuses to that as well. But essentially, that's the new thing. Now, now uh, okay. there's something else I can talk to you about in a little bit later. Of course, there's loan forgiveness attached to that. But I wanted to go back, Ryan, to the um, examples we were using. Okay. And look at some of the payments. Before you jump into the examples, the mm-hmm. these income-based and contingent and pay-as-you-earn, these are all yep. government programs? Yep. Yeah. Every, all the plans I am discussing with you, the old time-driven plans, the 10 extended and graduated, and these three income-based plans or income-driven plans are all U.S. government plans and only apply to to the government Loans, federal student loans. Now, I know there may be students out there or graduates out there who say, well, I, I, I do have some private loans or I'm thinking of taking out private loans. For those of you who have those private loans, you have to make other plans and deal with your um, lender at the time and see what options you have for deferment after you graduate and so on and so forth. Um, if you're ever thinking of which loan should I borrow, it's far better to borrow the federal loans because of the, the safety you have with it and the, the, the protections you have. The fact that this is something that most people don't realize. Federal loans do not capitalize the interest while you're in school. It's sitting off on the sidelines. It's not being added back in. It only gets added in later once you get into repayment. So it's cheaper that way. Mm -hmm. Plus, you have all of these options. And again, I go back to having options 
makes your life a little bit better, and that'll come out a little bit later when we go through the explanations. Okay. So what we've said so far, if you're making about 50000 which is the average residency salary, and you borrowed about 170000 I used an interest rate of 6.8. Um, the standard plan would be very high. Remember, you're only taking home about 33000 3400 You have to subtract your rent and all of the other things out of that. And so the standard plan and the graduated plans, they're a little bit more challenging uh, for you to live off. But when you get to the income plans, here's what happens. On the old income contingent plan, the one that's 20 years old and only wants 20%, you would pay $642 in this scenario. So go back to doing your math, $3,400 minus $1,200, whatever your rent would be, it leaves you X amount of dollars. You can possibly afford this uh, payment depending on what you're doing with the rest of your money and what other entanglements you have. Then when you move to the 15% plan, it comes to $410. Now we're talking a very affordable payment. And then the new pay as you earn if you have uh, – now this one right now is the way the law is written. If you have student no student debt prior to October 1st, 2007, you would qualify. Now the president in his budget proposal as we speak is asking to make that plan available to all borrowers. Okay. But then in that example, it's only $273 a month. So now you're beginning to see if you really want this profession and you unfortunately, you do have to borrow some money and maybe a lot of it, you have options. You can come out of school and have modest payments. You can establish your, your, your career. You can establish your life. You could get married, perhaps. You could have children. You could save for a house because you have other income left over. If you're using your money properly, you have other money you could do other things with, like save or invest. Now, you can imagine, Ryan, that there's pros and cons to this as well. Yeah, I'm, I'm sitting here picturing, okay, <laughs> great. It's, it's, it's all pretty up front, and yep. then... It's <clears throat> think I, I I'm thinking it. There has to be a catch. Where where am I gonna get? Wh- when when are they gonna reach into my pockets and and take it all? <laughs> well, let me let me just mention a few other things associated with these plans: the income plan and the IBR plan, the I, ICR income based, and the income contingent, the older plan, the twenty percent, fifty percent. Those plans have built into it. Something that happens at the end of 25 years. So let's, let's go back to my examples. You're paying modest payments. You're saying, well, yeah, they're, they're modest payments, but I'm really not chipping off too much of this loan. But if I went along for 25 years, you know, it's like, you know, I have a mortgage. You know, I have my internet every month, and I got this thing called student loan payment. And at the end of 25 years, if I have anything still left over, which you probably would, the government says, you know, that's enough will forgive whatever you have left over at the end of 25 years. And on the pay-as-you-earn plan, because that's the newer plan, it stops at year 20. However, they will look at that savings, that forgiveness piece, whatever the amount is, and they'll look at your tax bracket, and they're going to tax you on that amount. So you could say, yeah, okay, that's nice, but you know, I may have to pay this, this, this tax at the end of 20 or 25 years. But I have... Better options, but and and let me mm. let me point out that most of the students you're not paying four hundred and ten dollars a month for twenty years because it is based on your income. Your income is going to go up, well, hopefully <laughs> during those twenty years. So yeah. so you are going to be paying more, but you can you can still pay it, and maybe we can get into it later. Um, Maybe some exclusionary things for the income-based stuff, but you're not you. You don't have to pay the minimum four ten for the, you're not you. You no. won't be paying the four hundred ten dollars for the whole twenty years. That would no, be nice. I, that would be nice, but you're right. It is based on income, but again, it's only that small percentage. Remember, if your income goes to you know two hundred thousand dollars, you're taking in ten thousand a month mm-hmm. uh, after the deduction, so on. But you can always pay more. You could say, you know, I have to, you know, I'll pay eight hundred a month. I'll make believe I'm doubling it up, and there's never a penalty, and so on and so forth. But there are other options, though. Now, the federal government has created something called the Public Service Loan Forgiveness 
plan, if you would. And here's what this is. If you're in the 10-year plan, the standard plan, if you're in the income-driven plans that we just described, income-contingent, income-based, pay-as-you-earn, if you're in any one of those four plans and you're making payments and you just so happen to work, be working in a not-for-profit setting, public hospital, city hospital, um, veterans, any government facility, county, state, federal, you know what? You could be the staff physician of the American Red Cross and they're a not-for-profit. You could go back into academic medicine, work at a medical school, teach and see patients. And of course, you're associated with the U.S. Air Force, Army, Navy. Air Force, yeah. Air Force, yep. And so you're a not-for-profit. When you are making payments in those four plans and you're being paid that month by a not-for-profit, that's a marriage of one. You do that for 120 times or 10 years. At the end of that 10-year period, you have complete loan forgiveness of whatever's left over, and this time, they will not tax you. So you can imagine, you'll have more sitting out there in 10 years than you would have in 25, and you'll, you'll have the loan forgiveness. Now, but you're working in a not-for-profit for 10 years. So he says, okay, that sounds good too. Well, let's think about this for a minute. Well, the, if, you, if, we, if we said at the beginning of the um, recording, uh, the podcast, you shouldn't just pick a med school based on money. You should go deeper and go deeper and go deeper. Well, it kind of works the same way with this. You say, okay, I'll borrow as much as I want, more than I need, because I'm going to have loan forgiveness. Well, I don't know about that. You, you know, it's 14 years away from your first year in med school that you might get loan forgiveness. So what are we talking about? Well, it's, it's a question of should you pick now your hospital or your career once you leave med school, once you're interviewing based on the fact that they're not-for-profit or not or should be the kind of setting and the kind of work situation that's best for you. Another thing. You know, you may be in your three or four or five or six-year residency or fellowship, and yeah, and most likely it's not-for-profit. Those years will count towards the 10. But what do you do after that? Do you stay in the not-for-profit world or do you move to a private practice? Here's why. You probably will – I mean, it's a safe statement to say you'll be paid less in the not-for-profit world than you would in the for-profit world. What if it's a difference of thirty, forty, or fifty thousand dollars a year, and you have four or five years past your residency and fellowship to go towards the ten years? Well, what matters more, having two hundred or two hundred and fifty thousand dollars that you could earn in the private sector versus working in the not-for-profit sector and getting some loan forgiveness? Is there a family involved? Are there other people involved in that decision? So I have to explain all of that as well. We have to explain things on the coming into a med school, and we have to explain the pros and cons as well. Now, someone is going to have a very long residency and fellowship, Brian, seven or eight years, maybe nine years. Now, they're almost there. But I think for those, the average residency is probably four to five years with fellowship. I think you have to think about that. However, if you choose to stay in the not-for-profit, you have this, uh, this terrific option available to you. Now, the one thing we have to always think about, and stu students always ask this, what, will, what could happen to this plan? Let me, could this, uh, let, yeah. uh, let me interrupt you real quick because sure. I got something buzzing through my head. Go ahead. Not all hospitals are non-profit. No. Are all residencies can say, what if you do a residency at a for-profit hospital? Well, he here's, what hap here's what I'm discovering. Not all hospitals, true, are not-for-profit. But this is an odd thing. I always tell the students thinking about emergency medicine, you have a little bit of a quirky situation. You could be working at a not-for-profit hospital, and you could be paid by a for-profit outsourced yeah, payments yep. company, and it and it won't count because you're not being paid by the not for profit, okay. so to speak. So a little and, research has to go into it. Well, here's what I'm telling students now, and I'm going to tell. Well, you tell the applicants, but when it comes time to third year, I start really telling the third year students: 
when you are preparing to go on your interviews and when you're on your interview. Ask two questions. Are you a not-for-profit? And there's a specific title from the IRS called 501c3. But you, you, know, you could be a not-for-profit without that designation as well. And who will pay me? Are you not-for-profit and who will pay me? Um, I, I've heard estimates of 80 to 90% of the hospitals are not-for-profit or 10 to 20% aren't. But even within that, you've got to ask the question, who pays me? Okay. Okay. Good, good question. So those are some of the things that um, you have to think about. But you, d- you don't have to feel paralyzed as an applicant uh, that you, you really – this is never going to work out. You're, you will never have a life. You will be paying these loans back and, and getting, getting Social Security at the same time. It doesn't have to go that route at all. And I think the income plans are the best. Now, I was starting to say, students ask, well, this sounds good. You know, you can get loan forgiveness. Could this plan disappear? Now, in all of my experience, and I've been doing this a very long time, what the the federal government tends to do when it makes changes is they phase changes it. They always say from this date on, anyone X who's new at this, you get these terms. The rest of you keep what you have. And we recently saw this. If you remember, we used to have on the graduate level the subsidized Stafford loan and the unsubsidized Stafford loan. Okay? Well, starting last year, the government phased out on for the graduate level the subsidized Stafford loan. But from that moment on, from last year on. Now, what could happen to this plan? And this is something I always want students and applicants to take a piece of that wonderful brain and keep it open about politics and policy. Here's what happens. If I said to you, Ryan, I want you to go out there and speak badly about this and create, create a headline, you would come up with something like, how do you like this, America? All these rich doctors are getting hundreds of thousands of dollars of loan forgiveness per student. And when you add up the loan forgiveness... Half their medical school we paid for. That's the kind of thing we have to think about. Um, Because there's a lot of people who might not like the fact that people get loan forgiveness. Mm. Although they are earning it, but they don't like it. And And that was was Obama's statement when he said you didn't do it alone. Yeah, I know. I know. So... Um, you may see things like, okay, if you make $200,000 or more, you'll only get 80% loan forgiveness. Or if you have that kind of income or higher, you have to take 15 years for your loan forgiveness. I'm just giving you possible mm-hmm. ways that Washington works. So we keep our eyes on that. Um, you can always make another statement. They're working 80 hours a week. Uh, they're doing marvelous work with their lives and so on and so forth. So I think interjecting the political and the policy and the legislative ain't a bad thing. Uh, it's something to also keep in the back of your head. Okay. Um, can I state now some of the some of the websites I'd like them to um, follow up with? We will have some other questions, but um, there's a very good site. Now, let me explain this to our listeners. The federal government owns the student loan program. The Department of Education is your lender. The government is your lender. But since it's such a big program, you know they can't they can't monitor it themselves. So what they do, and they often do, there's so many different kinds of government contracts out there. They outsource it to loan servicers. It's all as there's four major services. They they parcel up all the tens of millions of students who are out there, and um, they're going to service your loan. They're going to be in con- touch with you. Um, it's like a branch of the military. Um, you, you're the Air Force, and uh, somebody will get the Army. So what, what that means is that um, they're going to talk to you, work with you. You can, you can deal with them and so on and so forth. Um, so um, that's something that they, they also need to know as well, that there'll be, there'll be services along the way. Yeah, and, and for example, I think 
uh, Bank of America for a while owned my loans, and then they sold it to another company that now contacts me. So it, it can juggle between multiple companies. Yeah, and there was even some confusion a couple of years ago when you, a student, could have three servicers because they were changing everything over from the old system to the new system. Now, one of the servicers, you've heard of them. You've heard of Sally Mae. They happen to be a servicer now. You've heard of Great Lakes, maybe Nelnet, but there's one called Fed Loans, and and this is a site I want your listeners to go to. It is uh, a site where they have this repayment schedule estimator. So if you typed in Google Fed My Fed Loans dash repayment schedule estimator, you get this very clean, neat one screen program, and what it allows you to do is put in your income or any income. And what I like to tell the, the medical students about to leave, play with incomes. See what happens as your income rises. And you said that, Ryan, you're not always going to be at 50000 You could be at 250000 mm-hmm. So you can put an income in. You put your total federal loan balance. You put an interest rate, 6.8, whatever you want. You hit the tab, and the next thing you know on the right, all of the different plans I spoke about show what your payment would be based on your loans awesome. and or your income. Awesome. And and, and this is, if, 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 let me throw a wrench in there. If yeah. I married another physician who also Good. makes $200,000, am I using my income or combined okay. income? Very good. Let's Now let's get into some of the intricacies. I think everybody pretty much understands this. Let's go into some of the granular kinds of things. One, the, the government uh, and these plans allow you to file separately as a married couple. And if you file separately, then it's still just your income and your loans. So instead of uh, each of you making 150000 that would be 300000 So if you put 300000 in this calculator, um, you, may, you may not qualify for those income plans because you don't have the partial hardship anymore. However, it does allow you to file separately and say, I only make 150. Now, Pros and cons, Ryan. You, what do you lose if you file separately? You lose marriage tax breaks and all kinds of other things. So ask again, your you, tax advisor. <laughs> yes, I always say I'm not a tax accountant. You must make that decision uh, and then weigh the pros and cons to it. But it does allow you to do that. Now, also, it takes into consideration the fact that if there's two or three in the family with dependents, there are um, changes. So if you take the same scenario, if, if your listeners can get to the screen, and then you add two dependents, and you keep looking at the income plans, you notice that they're now lower. If you add a baby, they go even lower. Hmm. So it, again, it, it'll, it, it adjusts as it should for expenses other than student loans. And, of course, if you have two kids, it goes lower and lower and so forth. So you might say, well, we can keep our combined income. We can file jointly because we have two kids. It may make a difference. Again, more granular. I'll have a link to that again in the show notes. So those those driving down the road don't don't need to (laughs) write down this information right now. Absolutely. And and again, you'll have all the links. Um, Now, some other granular things about the public service loan forgiveness piece. One. It, it doesn't have to be consecutive. So you graduate with debt, you learn about these wonderful income plans, you go into it, and you're doing your residency and fellowship. It's five years, let's say. It's been in a not-for-profit. You have five years of not-for-profit and making payments in the bank. That counts. It's linked. And it actually will show up on the service or website. You had 120 payments to go. You've just made 60. You know, you have 60 to go. Okay. So you, then you say, well, you know, I have this opportunity to take this job at a private practice. I'm going for it. Well, obviously, for the next year or two, or, or, that's not going to count. You can still make your payments and the plans and so forth, but it doesn't count. After two years, you say, you know what? I've got this burning desire to do academic medicine. I want to teach. And I want to see patients. I'm going back to New York Medical College and I'm going to teach there or whatever. Guess what? The clock picks up again. Now you're at an offer profit. And if you do another five years, it'll be 12 altogether from the time you started. But you got five, you stop for two, you go back and do the rest. It all counts. Now, another little granular piece. You don't have to do 80 hours a week or 60 hours a week. As long as you're doing 30 hours a week in that not-for-profit, it counts. 
So that may mean, oh, I could instead of doing four to five hours a week, I could stop out, have a kid, and get home a little bit earlier maybe and reduce my workload. As long as I'm putting 30 hours in, I'm still counting for one payment that month and a paycheck that month. I'm linked. So, again, more options with pros and cons along the way. All right. Good to know. So um, one of the other sites you'll have for them is besides the repayment schedule, besides what tax bracket I'm in, I really would like them to start with uh, a Google search, Simple Federal Student Aid. It'll be Federal Student Aid Home. You know you're on the right page when you see five or six profiles of, of average Americans, right? Well, they have different categories. The one I would like your listeners to go to, actually jump to, is the Repay Your Loans tab at the top or you see it at the bottom. Now, this is from the source. We, I want to go right to the source. You could do all kinds of other Google searches, but you don't know where you're going. Some of it wants you to pay for things. This is the government source from the Department of Ed. And you'll have the different kinds of repayment plans. You'll have the loan forgiveness plans. Um, you'll understand cancellation, if something went wrong, if you're unemployed, which should not happen. What is a loan servicer? It's all there with detail. So you might want to start there. Then you can get into the more esoteric kinds of things about tax brackets and actually what will my loan payments be. Okay. So those are the three things I'd like them to, to use. All right. That's great. So let me throw one more wrench at you. I love wrenches. Go ahead. Something that unfortunately is a huge deal uh, as of last year it was in the news with about 500 or so U.S. medical school graduates not getting a residency spot. It's actually 1,100 this year. It was 1,100 this year. Okay. Yeah. What happens to a student that doesn't get a residency spot? When they have loans to pay back. Yeah. Um, you have protections there and you have options there as well. There are in-school deferments where they don't expect you to pay, obviously, because you're a full-time student. Um, there's deferments when you leave for a little bit. There's something called forbearance saying, look, I'm having a little trouble right now. Can you put me into forbearance? If you looked up the word, it's patience, but forbearance is legal. It doesn't hurt your credit score, uh, and it just buys you time for six months or a year. However, they also would have an unemployment deferment. Um, however, here's what I would do. I would tell that student to, con to go into one of these income plans. You would have no income. Huh? They, they would give you a zero payment. Yeah. And the months would still count. Even if you're paying 50 cents, it still counts. Still counts. I like but it. That's one-on-one -on -one with that particular person. Yeah. So you, you still have options. No one's going okay. to say, oh, that's too bad. No. They don't want you to default. Yeah. And um, they, they do have lots of safety nets. Okay. Good to know. And that's why I say stay with federal student loans because these are the kinds of things you get with it. The private loans don't have these kinds of – they don't have loan forgiveness plans. And unfortunately, with some private loans, the year you take it out, they only count four or five years from that year. So I'm seeing students who are first and second year medical students who took these loans out five years ago, four years ago. The money's coming due. Yeah. Not good. And that, that brings you full – brings us full circle – full circle back to your original statement, the more options you have, the better. And private loans just limit your options. They absolutely do. Okay. Uh, remember, this is not only about you, applicant, listener. There will be and there may be other people in your life. So we're planning and protecting them as well. Yeah. And again, all of these options help them too. Yeah. And just one, <laughs> one caveat and, and something that I struggled with in, in medical school, and, and I'm not ashamed to talk about it is credit card debt credit card debt is a huge uh limiter of your options you got it brian i was thinking about it as i was speaking before and i was trying to say to myself remember to mention it thank you for bringing it up 
all of these wonderful things we talked about. Hey, I'm only going to make a small payment. I can save money. I can have the car. I can have a kid. I can maybe save for a house because I have these modest payments. You know, the one thing that tips the boat and throws it completely out of whack are the credit card payments. Go back to that example, 3400 minus 1200 rent, and then you have a six or $700 credit card payment. Well, there it goes. Yep. What's left? Very little. Now you're actually going to struggle because – you know, if something emergency comes up, you're, you're, you're sunk. So the more we can stress, use your cards as convenience. Use them for emergencies, but they're not a lifestyle. Yeah. The more you do that now, the better it is. We've been pretty lucky. Our graduates come out with under the national average for medical students with, with credit card debt. And I try to do my best to get that message to them even before they come. So it's, you know. Everybody has to do their share a little bit about that. But thanks for bringing that up. That is critical. All of this doesn't work if you do that, but so far, so good. All right, folks. That was Tony Sozo with a ton of great information. I hope you made it all the way through because there was information out the the wazoo all the way through there. I do want to mention one more time the Academy. Go to medicalschoolhq.net slash academy before September 26th at 3 p.m. Eastern to get in the special charter member rate less than two. The cost is less than two cups of coffee a month. Very doable. Awesome community. I'm having a blast reading everybody's information as they're trickling in and and posting about themselves. It's, It's awesome to see real names and faces and and actually be able to interact like normal human beings. And uh, I, I really hope you, you consider joining us. So with that said, I hope what we provided for you today was great. And I hope that you join us next time here at the medical school headquarters. 